Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. Okay. So... I'm in the Wild Heart Meditation Center facilitator training. I have been for this entire year, uh, which means I meet up with a bunch of other Dharma nerds and we just kind of talk about that and learn how to do exactly what I'm doing right now. And so um, a few weeks ago, we had our most recent gathering and Mikey posed us with the question, who would win in a fight between the Brahma Viharas? So, for those of you that know what the Brahma Viharas are, you're like, haha, chuckle, chuckle. For those of you that are like, I don't know what that means, I got you. So, the Brahma Viharas are often translated as the divine abodes of the heart. You'll hear them called the four immeasurable sometimes, uh, the heart practices. Often, I hear about how you can enter into awakening through either the stream of insight and concentration or uh, compassion, heart practices, that kind of thing. I think so many of us come to the practice seeking clarity and seeking this insight that we forget there's this whole other world of compassion and loving kindness and equanimity and sympathetic joy. So what happens is we go so far into the concentration that we find things and then we don't know what to do with it because we haven't practiced compassion or we haven't practiced loving kindness. And so these Brahma Viharas, there's four of them. I said them uh, before, but I'll say them again. There's Metta, which is loving kindness. Karuna, which is compassion. Mudita, which is sympathetic joy or non-attached appreciation. And then there's Upeka, which is equanimity. And so when, you know, your teacher says who would win in a fight between all those things, it's weird to think about because most of the time you don't picture compassion to be fighting or, you know, like loving kindness to be duking it out with somebody else. But every single person for the most part said out of all of the Brahma Viharas, equanimity would win in a fight, which I was a little bit surprised and curious about. But I'm curious, what about y'all? For those of you who feel like you have a a dog in the fight, who do you think would win? That's a good one, Debbie. I like that. A lot of folks said equanimity would win because you'd go to punch it and it would just like absorb it. And it would just like, cause it's just, you know, pardon my French, but I, I feel like equanimity is this quality of being unfuckwithable, you know? Like for real, that's like the best way I can explain it. And, you know, we'll go more in depth about all of these, like it's a really deep, dense topic or it can be, and there's also a lot of easy ways to start to practice this. Um, But I do think that 
given the chance, I think equanimity would totally dominate the fight between all the Brahma Viharas. So I'm guessing that's probably why we leave it last. Probably why it's last because it's this overarching thing. And it actually has a lot, it shows up a lot in the Dharma, right? So there's, it's one of the, it's the last of the 10 perfections or the 10 paramis. We like lists in this tradition. I'm sure y'all know that. Um, my brain loves that we do lists. But so there's the 10 perfections and that, this is the last one of that. It's one of the seven factors of awakening. It is a characteristic of the fourth jhana, which is a big fancy uh, word for more like intense, like very, very um, elevated concentration. Um, and then it's the last of the four Brahma Viharas or divine abodes of the heart. Um, does that make sense? Everybody with me on that? So another piece of equanimity, besides it just being a heart practice, um, you know, I was driving with a friend on tour and her mom called us while we were in the car. And it's always awkward to talk to a friend's mom while you're, you know, driving the car. But we were talking about how my friend is moving to Nashville and how we've got this awesome meditation center and we practice like American convert Buddhism. It's going to be awesome. And then her mom asks, well, if you don't mind me asking, what, what do you believe? What, what does that mean? I was, I was not prepared <laughs> for this question, Karen. Um, but I am hesitant to tell you that we believe any one thing or not, um, just because there's a big there's a big focus on what we call ahipasako or seeing for yourself. Right? It's about taking these practices and seeing what they mean for you and seeing how you can apply them in your own life. So I don't know how you wrap that up in a bow for your friend's mom, but so what I said is, well, I, I guess you would say that we you know, practice meditation and heart practices uh, in a way to try and find enlightenment, right? We're trying to find awakening. Uh, and she was like, well, like, what does awakening mean? I was like, oh, it's like, it's like equanimity. And she's like, what does equanimity mean? And I was like, Oh man, this is hard. But but when you think about it, when I really do feel like awakening and equanimity are pretty synonymous, right? It's that whole thing. It's being unfuckwithable. Like, yeah. And so I actually went to the dictionary for this and I said, okay, Karen, it means mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. That's how the dictionary defines it. And I really love this word evenness. It means like uh, feeling like we're finding a solid middle ground. Think about it almost like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Like it's not too hot, not too cold, it's just right. It's just right. And I feel like we have all stumbled upon this evenness. We've all stumbled upon this balance. For me, the first time I feel like I really experienced equanimity, I was on a hike in Boulder, Colorado by myself. I had like flown there on tour and I was on this hike and I was like trudging up this mountain that I was not prepared to climb. I had like a scarf and designer boots on or something like that and it just didn't go well. But I was huffing and puffing my way to the top and I finally got to the top and it was so quiet. It was this quiet, 
little patch of, of like dirt surrounded by rocks with this view of these mountains, just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And everything felt so still and even and balanced that I was like, oh my gosh, I can never leave, <laughs> you know, because we're like, but I think most of the time we associate that with a place, right? We associate this refuge, we associate this balance, this evenness with like our happy place. That's why in meditation, I feel like sometimes we're instructed to find that place, take yourself back to the mountain, find that equanimity. But it's not so that we can stop thinking of that place and lose that quality of equanimity. It's so we can understand what that feels like in the body. And that's what I feel like the heart practices are great at. It's a really great way for us to practice this felt sense of evenness and equanimity, um, regardless of where we're at or what's going on. Um, you know, I in the facilitator training, they say to give elevator pitches. So I think, you know, Webster's Dictionary does a good job, but my elevator pitch for equanimity is the felt sense of balance and evenness in the heart, a tranquil and not easily shaken place to reside, a deep sense of being able to be with whatever arises, both pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, with tact and kindness. So, how I want to talk about this today is I'm going to start with the teaching that helped me the most with understanding it, which is the worldly winds. We're going to talk about the eight worldly winds. We're going to talk about wise cultivation of equanimity and practical application on and off the cushion. And then we'll actually do a practice. Sound good? Dope. That's awesome. So the reason I like to start with the worldly winds uh, is because I find it to be one of the most approachable and poignant teachings uh, that sets the scene for why we need equanimity. And, uh, you know, it, it honestly it just like really was a game changer for me. When I first started diving into meditation and dharma, the eight worldly winds was like this light bulb moment for me. And so the eight worldly winds are pain and pleasure, gain and loss, status and disgrace, and blame and praise, okay? So they're like little pairs, think about it. We're always on one side of pain or pleasure. We're somewhere on that spectrum. Gain and loss, same thing. And I'll say them one more time, but what I want you to do is I want you to try not to get too logical with this. I think sometimes we really like to like get, get in on it. I want you to just listen to these and f see if you can figure out how it feels in the body when they come up or if one is more present for you. So pain versus pleasure. Gain versus loss. Status versus disgrace. And blame versus praise. Oftentimes I hear upeka, which is the Pali word for equanimity, translated as there in the middleness, which I really love. And I almost, you know, when I first started practicing this, when I first started learning about the worldly winds, it was like my brain thought, oh, wait, there in the middleness. I need to be right in the middle of all these things all the time. So I need to, like, control my experience so much that, you know, I'm not experiencing so much gain or I'm not experiencing so much loss. I'm not experiencing status, right? And 
that's when we fall into near and far enemies, which I'll talk about here in a minute. But when I think about their middleness, it seems almost more like an acceptance than a, a skill or a control of some sort. For me, I think being there in the middle of it is just almost simply understanding that it's going to change. It's going to be whatever it is. I, I don't really love the saying it is what it is, but it's kind of how it, it comes across in this moment. And you heard me talk in the intro about concentration versus heart practice, the two wings of insight, right? Like concentration and heart practice. And I do think it's important to cultivate wisdom still, right? To practice concentration, because then we can see when we're being swept away by these worldly winds, right? If I didn't have my meditation practice, if I didn't have concentration, when I get like wrapped up in my sprained ankle and like start saying all these you know, stories to myself about it, I wouldn't have the wisdom to see like, oh, I'm spinning out. I'm letting this worldly wind like take me over this way. So uh, the sutta, I think, is a little bit more eloquent than I am sometimes with these things. So there's a teaching uh, from the Lokavapati Sutta, uh, which is basically the Buddha describing the difference between someone who has cultivated equanimity and someone who is not um, in regards to the way that the winds shape them as they kind of come and go. Does that make sense? So I'm going to read you this sutta or a, a piece of it. So just like, listen, listen to it. See what it feels like to kind of let yourself take this in and don't feel like you have to remember it. Right? Just see if something jumps out. The blessed one said, gain arises for an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. He does not reflect. Gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He does not discern it as it actually is. Loss arises, status arises, disgrace arises, censure arises, praise arises, pleasure arises, pain arises. All the same, he does not reflect. Pain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He does not discern it as it actually is. His mind remains consumed with the gain. His mind remains consumed with the loss, with the status, the disgrace, the censure, the praise, the pleasure. His mind remains consumed with the pain. He welcomes gain and rebels against loss. He welcomes status and rebels against disgrace, welcomes praise and rebels against censure. He welcomes the pleasure and rebels against the pain. As he is thus engaged in welcoming and rebelling, he is not released from birth, aging, or death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, or despairs. He is not released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. Now gain arises for a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, he reflects. Gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant. It is stressful, and it is subject to change. He discerns it as it actually is. 
Loss arises, status arises, disgrace arises, censure arises, praise arises, pleasure arises, pain arises, and he reflects, pain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, it is stressful, and it is subject to change. He discerns it as it actually is. His mind does not remain consumed with gain. It does not remain consumed with loss, with status, the disgrace, the censure, the praise, the pleasure. His mind does not remain consumed with the pain. I think it is interesting to note that the well-instructed person, this like person who's kind of getting it right, pain, pleasure, status, disgrace, they all still show up. You know, I think sometimes we have this uh, picture in our minds of like, if we're like perfectly zen or like if we, if we have equanimity on lock, like, oh, well like pain doesn't happen. I, I like transcend pain. I hear that thrown around in the meditation communities a lot, like I'm gonna transcend this. I'm gonna transcend gain or loss. I'm just gonna kind of like sit in the forest with a llama and like hang out forever, you know? <laughs> I was talking about an actual animal llama, just so you know. Um, I don't know why, it seems so, it seems so tranquil. <laughs> but the difference between an instruct, a well-instructed person and a non-well-instructed person is, one is, what did they say? They said, consumed. The mind is consumed or not consumed. And I don't know about you, but very often my mind feels consumed by one of these things. <laughs> the particular flavor that's been showing up for me has been uh, loss, right? Money's weird and hard. And oftentimes I notice because of this cultivation of, of insight and concentration that it, will wobble into something where I'm not just afraid of like budgeting or like getting a sandwich for myself, but I, I start to ask these questions of like, well, why am I so bad with money? Why did my wife marry me? She knows I'm so bad at money. Why do I have so much debt? You know, and that's when we can see it start to spin out. So when I notice those things, I go, oh, okay. Like I can notice it and I can be with it in a tactful and kind way. And I think that that's like a, not to toot my own horn, but a mark of a well-instructed person. And so I wanna go into that a little more, like what is a well-instructed person? Um, I want y'all to just shout out what you think in response to this question, just something quick, just one word. What are characteristics of a well-instructed person? Discipline. Discipline. Humble. Humble. Peace. Knowledgeable, peaceful. Grounded. Grounded. Hmm. Now, I'm curious when you think of those things and you say those things, do you see yourself as those things? Or are you thinking about somebody who's over here and not you? I want to encourage you, just like as a sidebar, that those things are all in you already. And it just takes a little bit of uh, effort. Why is effort? Mm -hmm. To start to 
bring them to light. And I think we talk about well-instructed. Sometimes I don't love saying well-instructed because I've got like little T religious trauma and my sweet little brain is like, what do you mean well-instructed? Like having a good teacher or having being in the right place at the right time, at the right center. So I like to talk about well-trained, right? Somebody who's been training their mind. Because meditation, as we know, is a practice. It is not an experience. And so if we can have consistent enough wise practice, if we can show up, that's it. If we can show up and genuinely just care about how we show up in the world, I think that that is a a good start to being a well-trained person. I would also even just like to offer, like, maybe you can can pat yourself on the back, check the box for today, like, for training the mind, you showed up. You're here. I don't think you'd be here if you didn't care. Mm -hmm. I think caring is enough in a lot of of ways. There's another uh, reading from the suttas of the, it's in the Dhammapada, that I liked that talked about the characteristics of a well-trained or well-instructed person. As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires, touched by happiness and then by suffering. The the sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. That seems really unattainable. Like, pretty unapproachable, right? It's, it's beautiful, and I feel like, oh, maybe one day it's that same thing. So maybe one day I'll be like that. And I think what happens is I get stuck on the showing no sign of being elated or depressed. This is where wise practice, I think, comes in. Because that showing no sign of being elated and depressed comes back to that whole feeling of like, oh, I'm supposed to transcend all of this. I can't feel things. Right? If I was like really in it, really in my Dharma practice, really <laughs> meditating right, and if I meditated more and did all this stuff, I would be just like, wouldn't feel anything. I would be like just floating in space, and it'd be awesome. And again, this is where wise practice comes in. That's why I want to talk about the wise cultivation of equanimity because of my tiny religious trauma, there's a lot of spiritual bypassing that goes on in all traditions, in all religions, in all places. And I think a lot of that is caused by apathy, um, which is the near enemy of equanimity. So if you've heard me talk on the Brahma Viharas, you know I like am really pumped on these near and far enemies. I think they're super neat and uh, very insightful. And so each Brahma Vihara has a near enemy and a far enemy. And I like to describe these as the near enemy is like what it's easy to slip into, right? So it's, it's an unwholesome way of like practicing equanimity. It's like uh, almost, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you're like, ah, almost, almost had it. And then the far enemy, when you're experiencing the far enemy, it's a good indicator that it's time to practice one of these. So, uh, for instance, for example, with equanimity, 
The near enemy is apathy, and the far enemy is resentment, greed, hatred, or even I would say just spinning out in general. And so when I notice that there's a, I'm spinning out in greed, resentment, hatred, I go, oh, maybe it's time to practice equanimity, and I'll toss it into my meditation practice for the week. Or if I notice that, I don't know, I feel like this has been on my mind, and I'm honestly talking off script at this point because I feel so strongly about these near and far enemies. There was a, a poster that I saw on Instagram that said, in big letters that said, relax, you'll be dead soon. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what's coming to mind for me. That's what's coming to mind for me when we talk about apathy. Um, it is sometimes relieving to think like, oh, nothing matters. It just doesn't matter. And I think that with, with apathy, There's, there's a fine line for me um, between just straight up not caring and choosing what to care about. So I'll let that marinate for you, just whatever apathy feels like mm -hmm. to you. Because remember, you have to see for yourself. I can't tell you what apathy feels like for you. You need to just take a little dive. So if you notice yourself falling into apathy, falling into um, this like really detached indifference, maybe it's time to, to reevaluate. How do you reevaluate? Let's talk about the practical application. You've heard me say like, maybe time to practice. Just gotta practice, do this thing. There's plenty of ways to practice equanimity. Um, Obviously there's on the cushion, which is something we're gonna practice here in just a minute. With all the heart practices, we focus on phrases as our anchor instead of the breath. Well, not instead, but as in addition, if that makes sense. Um, so each Brahma Vihara has its own set of phrases and you can come up with phrases that make sense to you. I'll tell you the ones that we use for, at least I use for, for mine. I use right now it's like this. I can be with things as they are, and may I accept this with love and equanimity. Those are my personal ones um, on the cushion. Now you'll hear plenty of different facilitators and instructors give you plenty of different options for that, but these ones I feel like have been the most helpful for me because when I look at equanimity, I really practice it through these worldly wins on a daily basis. This is my most consistent daily practice is, you know, having a moment where I'm afraid of, of money or something. And I go, okay, right now it's like this. I can be with things as they are. May I accept this with love and equanimity. Now that doesn't mean I'm gonna go max out 12 credit cards, right? But I'm not gonna continue to cause further suffering. That second arrow, right? It's like the, the arrow of being in debt is one thing, but the arrow of beating myself up for being in debt, that's where real suffering is. I like to say pain is inevitable, but suffering is not. Um, in a lot of ways. So that's on the cushion. That's how we practice on the cushion. I'll walk you through that. Um, off the cushion, which is where this shows up more for me, 
I think the biggest practice is balance with others, or what we like to call boundaries. We all love boundaries. Where you end and something else begins, right? Um, and I talked a lot about equanimity in relation to our own experience, right? I talked a lot about equanimity as like knowing when you're in one of the wins, but there's also an element of equanimity um, that falls in our relationship with other folks, right? So um, often I hear it talked about as codependency, right? So um, almost like thinking that somebody else's happiness is my responsibility, right? Or thinking that, you know, last night my, my wife and I were like having, we don't really fight, but we have these moments of like, we call them the four horsemen. Y'all heard of this, the four horsemen, the Gottmans. And so anytime one of these four horsemen come up, we always try to talk about it. And so last night I was feeling some resentment towards my wife, and I just was not talking about it. I wasn't saying anything about it. And the reason I felt resentment is because she was having a bad day. Right? She was just having a tough day. And um, no matter what I did, I bought her pretzels. I watched a sappy movie I didn't want to watch. No matter what I did, she was still having a bad day. And I was like, what the, come on. Like, I'm trying so hard, what are you talking about? And then I was like, man, you're talking about equanimity tomorrow. And it was such a good reminder of like, oh, you can have a bad day. I don't have to fix that. I can care, right? I can send you compassion, but it's not my responsibility. I'm not responsible for your happiness. Does that make sense? There's a lot of nuance to equanimity, especially with other folks. Um, you know, so it's, it's worth a dive. It's worth, a, you know, listening to some, some other talks and reading on it as much as you can. And then the other way that I like to practice this off the cushion is checking in with the evenness in the body. So remember how I was talking about my little, like, mountain range area that, like, I felt so even and tranquil? Do y'all have a place like that? Like, does anybody have, does something come to mind for you where you're like, wow, that's like the happy place. So when that comes to mind, what I, what I offer as, as a practice is how does it feel in the body? Like embodied presence when you reflect on this place. And so what I like to do is when I, think about this evenness in my body, I'll kind of come back away from like my little happy place and I'll realize that that's completely accessible and here for me right now. It's something I can access. And so um, it's almost like a fake it till you make it <laughs> in some ways. Like if you can kind of copy it in the body, it's likely that the mind will follow in my opinion. Um, but yeah, so lots of thoughts, lots of things. Lots of um, nuance. This is uh, when Andrew was like, hey, you're going to talk about equanimity. I was like, oof, okay. You know? Because it is, it is so vast and it is so deep. Um, and I feel very honored and thankful to be able to share this with y'all um, from the way that it shows up for me. It's really hard to unpack it all in one talk. Um, and it's not meant to be mysterious or unattainable, but it really does hold the key to awakening in a lot of ways. 
So I'm talking about it really at its most basic level. It's a way to navigate through these eight worldly winds of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and shame, shame and pleasure and pain. I want to reiterate that it is a practice. You can never meditate a day in your life and still practice being there in the middleness. Equanimity, in my opinion, is a superpower. So it makes you unfuckwithable. And I say that's worth practicing for. So how about we practice?